This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Jonathan V. Last is senior writer at the Weekly Standard in Washington, D.C. His writings have been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and many other of the nation's most illustrious and influential newspapers. He's also written for the Claremont Review of Books, the journal First Things, and others. His latest book is What to Expect When No One's Expecting. The subtitle of the book is America's Coming Demographic Disaster. Well, what to expect? I expect a good conversation with Jonathan Last. Jonathan, behind your book, What's to Expect When No One's Expecting, is your observation that something big is happening in the way human beings behave. That's right. We just aren't having enough babies. Uh, It's this amazing, amazing change in what is really the central fact of the human condition. Uh, You know, throughout recorded history, people have always had, uh, not always, but almost always had enough people, enough babies to sustain themselves, to sustain their civilizations and their populations. Uh, in fact, throughout most of recorded history, people have had more, more than enough to sustain. In fact, their populations have grown. But beginning in 1968, in America and the Western industrialized countries, fertility rates dropped off the table. They fell by half within a matter of years. By 1973, America was below the replacement fertility rate, and by the mid-1970s, all of the West was. This was really interesting. This was a, you know, a, a sort of calamity in many ways, but it was a, a subject of immense academic interest. But then, as all the professional academics and demographers were studying it, they noticed that fertility decline spread to the rest of the world as well. And so today, 97% of the world's population lives in a country where the fertility rate is declining. Global population uh, is going to peak, we believe, sometime in the next 50 or 60 years, and is then going to begin shrinking. And for the first time in human recorded history, population will shrink not because of famine, not because of war or disease or pestilence, but because people simply can't be bothered to have enough children. Well, amazingly enough, as you cite very thoroughly in your book, there are a number of people who, hearing you say that, even if they accepted it as true, which it self-evidently is, they would think this is a good thing. Yeah, that's true. There are a lot of people out there who think that this is all that this is all hearts and flowers, and it'll be fine, and that we don't need people. Uh, you know, there's there's another book written just last year by a guy named Robert Zubrin called Merchants of Despair, and what he argues very convincingly, I think, is that when you scratch those people deep enough uh, throughout history, and this. Those arguments have been going, we've been hearing them for 200 years since the time of Thomas Malthus that people are the problem, overpopulation is the problem. All of those concerns, first of all, they are based on faith, not actual science and data. All the, the data suggests that population growth produces very good things. Uh, we have longer lifespans, we have higher standards of living, we do not have famine anymore the way we did 200 years ago because we have learned to conquer food production. Uh, but all of those things. When you really scratch those people deep enough, they're anti-humanists in a way. Uh, it, isn't, it isn't really about the environment for them. It's about that they don't like people. Uh, and so that is why I think they don't think this is a problem. Well, to cite just one very important voice there, you would have David Attenborough, a very famous uh, British scientist who just recently called uh, human beings basically a, 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 a pest, uh, a plague upon the planet. Yeah, yeah, and that's really the heart of it. You know, in a way, that's progress, I guess, because... Uh, going back 200 years ago, and really until the 1960s, when people said those things, they were always explicitly racist claims. 
so the claim was always that you know people in in Asia or people in Africa or people who looked different than we were came from different cultures that they were the problem. And the the great achievement of Paul Ehrlich's population bomb, if we can call it a great achievement, was to sort of move past the mere racism of those positions into just blanket anti-humanism. So I suppose in a way it's an improvement and in a way it's a step backwards. That's a very interesting way to look at it, but it's also very interesting you bring up Paul Ehrlich because uh, just in terms of my interest in these issues over the last 30 years, Paul Ehrlich is so central to understanding why we're having this conversation and why so many people would find it so shocking. Because Paul Ehrlich, after all, gained great fame, both in the academic community here in the United States and in the larger popular culture, by warning that we were all on the precipice of a mass starvation because the world could not sustain, the planet could not sustain this level of population. Yeah, you know, so he he published his book, The Population Bomb, in 1968. Uh, I think it has sold three million copies. I mean, it's been so unbelievably wildly successful. But it's a strange book in so many ways. Uh, it's strange because he himself is not a demographer. He's like me, actually. He's just someone who plays a demographer on television. Uh, all he was doing was mining other other data and drawing his own conclusions. He was largely an autodidact. Uh, two, he was precisely wrong. Uh, you know, his book argues on the very first pages that hundreds of millions of people people are going to die in just a handful of years, and that, he says, the battle to feed humanity is over, and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, the only sense in which he's right is that it's true that the battle to feed humanity was over, but humanity won. Uh, you know, within just a few years of writing that, there were no mass starvations because we had the green revolution in agriculture. And now to the extent that there is any problem with starvation in the world, it really is a political problem. It's the, the result of corrupt autocrats using starvation and food as a weapon against their own people. But what's really interesting is that he was exactly wrong at the exact moment when the opposite was happening. Ehrlich was warning about asymptotic population growth with fertility rates that would spike to unimaginably high levels, would remain at high levels, and with a population, rate of population growth that would increase relentlessly to infinity. And again, the opposite happened. Beginning in 1968 is when the fertility collapse began in the West and then began eventually spreading worldwide. And so, in a strange way, the book which has shaped the most thinking, you know, to shape the popular conception of the entire subject of demographics uh, to an unimaginably large degree over the last 40 years now, uh, has been the book which has been the most wrongheaded in every particular. But isn't it interesting in America's popular culture, and as I recall, uh, Paul Ehrlich was even a, a guest host and a frequent guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, of all things. Yet not only was he, Carson would have him on occasionally and give him the entire show, like literally the, a full hour of just Paul Ehrlich. No jokes, no other guests, no Hollywood stars, you know, flogging movies. Uh, I mean, that's an amazing thing to think of how respected him and how influential he was. But what's again, well, well, by the way, let's just let's just point out in many circles, even though we now have 30 years plus of evidence against him, he's still influential in some circles and he never has recanted his theories, even though he said that by the late 1970s, hundreds of millions of people will be starving to death. Yeah, and not only is he not recanted, he's actually doubled down. He wrote a sequel to it just a few years ago. Uh, you know, I forget what the exact title of the book is. I, my friends and I always joke that it's, it's called The Population Bomb Now More Than Ever. Uh, I mean, it's sort of pathetic and sad in a way. And I, you know, I feel bad beating up on a, a gentleman who's in his, his older, his, his golden years. But, uh, but his book is immensely harmful. But, you know, here's the funny thing. 
as the time, as the enormous influence his book was having in the popular conception, and then in policy circles, you know, sort of among you know governments in Europe and governments here in America, certainly foundations, foundations like the Ford Foundation and the Planned Parenthood International Federation clung to as a Bible. But all of the academic research in the field being done by the actual demographers and the actual experts was going in the exact opposite direction. The people who were studying this stuff were totally unconcerned with overpopulation. What they were really mystified by was the phenomenon of falling fertility rates and sub-replacement fertility, and then eventually what demographers call lowest low fertility. Those are fertility rates below 1.4, from which uh, countries begin entering what they call a demographic death spiral, where you know after two generations of, of sub-replace of lowest low fertility, you wind up then losing, I think it's 40 percent of your population every 40 years. Well, demographers looking at a nation like Japan right now are openly speculating that there are no models to predict how any society can recover from the uh, the freefall and fertility that now marks Japan. Because uh, w- w- once you start down the road of having a total fertility rate that is so low, uh, th- there, other than some kind of mass immigration, which the, the nation of Japan has insulated itself against for centuries, c- could even begin to remedy the problem. Yeah, and Japan is really the, the very leading edge of this global demographic collapse. Uh, Japan has been sub-replacement for 50 going on 60 years. They have been lowest low fertility now for 40 years. Uh, what their numbers look like is this. If their fertility rate were to rebound this afternoon and suddenly be at the replacement level and then stay at the replacement level for the next 80 years, they would only lose 28% of their total population over that period. Uh, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, imagine losing one out of every four people around you. Uh, now, if, on the other hand, their fertility rate were to stay where it is now, they are going to lose close to 60%, close to 60% of their total population before the end of this century. Uh, that's amazing. I mean, Japan already has half of its land classified as what they call marginal depopulated land. But you simply have things closing up shop. And what's really worrisome here is that precedes depopulation is an inversion of the age pyramid so that you wind up with many more old people than young people. Last year, for the first time in Japan, people bought more adult diapers than they did diapers for babies. Uh, That is going to be a condition which persists for the foreseeable future. Uh, In about 20 years, they will have, for every newborn baby every year, for every new birth, they will also have a citizen turning 100. So they will at all times have an equal number of babies and centurions. that's an amazing thing, and, and we can't even really fully uh, contemplate what, that, what sort of macro effect that's going to have on society beyond the very pedestrian you know, economic problems and economic disasters, which it's already causing. I cited back last year when that statistic came out about the, uh, the, the, the tipping point where all of a sudden you had more adult diapers sold in Japan than, uh, than infant diapers, and uh, I guess some interesting backlash about that with people saying – you know that that's a, that that's an ageist. That's a, a discriminatory kind of observation. Uh, that's a basic change in human behavior. That is a very dangerous uh, indicator of the direction of a society, because societies cannot exist as uh, primarily the society of the aged. No, you can't because people need to care for the aged. I mean, this is <laughs> this is like a biblical compact. It goes back a very long time. Uh, but yeah, you, you need you need you need a certain you need a certain ratio of workers to retirees to be able to care for the aged. You need that whether you are in a privatized uh, setting where there is no social safety net, but especially if you live in a society where there is a social safety net, the way they have in Japan, the way that we have here in America, the way we have most most of the Western countries. And, you know, the problem here is that it, 
you seed the ground for generational conflict. Uh, just a few weeks ago, fortunately for me, in fact, uh, the week before my book came out, Japan's finance minister was held a press conference at which yes. he said that uh, that it was time for the country's elderly to quote hurry up and die. Uh, I mean, this is now again, you know, he, this is fine. He wasn't actually rounding up old people and sending them off to camps, but it is important to note that he didn't lose his job. I mean, right. you know, this guy still has his job. He still works for the government. Imagine our Treasury Secretary saying something like that. He would not be Treasury Secretary by the end of the day, I don't think. Uh, and what you, you have here is you have the ground seeded for generational conflict because you are very much in a zero-sum game. You cannot grow your way out of your problems because you are shrinking in terms of GDP, you are shrinking in terms of population, you are shrinking in terms of productivity. And so what you have is you have old people who have been promised a certain claim in terms of standard of living on resources, and you have young people who, because they are in declining numbers, are going to be taxed at increasingly increasingly large percentages in order to, to sustain the old people. Uh, something has to give. Yeah, one of the things that's been noted, by the way, and, and this uh, should definitely be noted, is that Japan's finance minister is one of the nation's wealthiest businessmen. And he doesn't have to worry about affording whatever he needs or desires at whatever stage of life, including his advanced age. But, uh, you know, the, what, what you have here is a kind of a, a new form of lifeboat ethics uh, kind of running backwards uh, with these demographic projections. And, and, you know, when you look at Japan, recent stories have come out, uh, for instance, indicating that nursing homes there are having to develop robotic assistance to help with the care of elderly people because there just aren't enough young people to care for the older people. Yeah, I mean, and think about that for a moment. That is the best-case scenario for Japan. <laughs> Their best-case scenario involves a future in which the old folks' homes are stuffed full of old folks and they're all being tended to by robots. Like, that's their idea of a good, positive outcome. <laughs> and that, you know, when you sort of put it in that sort of stark relief and you then think about, okay, well, then what do the bad outcomes look like? Again, you're, just ch- you're talking about total changes in the human condition, uh, changes in the way that people live their lives and people, the way people conceptualize their lives uh, for the first time in, in modernity. So let's talk about that for a moment. Before we even get to, uh, to many of the worldview aspects of modernity, there's some, there's some basic, I guess you might call, uh, hygienic and technological aspects. And, and one of them is the fact that a drop in infant mortality uh, was the leading edge of, of the cause for the drop in, in uh, the human replacement rate because people, uh, parents, no longer had to have as many children in order to have as many as, as they hoped and desired uh, survive into adulthood. Yes, exactly. And that, that was the, the biggest driver in all this is the decline in infant mortality. And one of the things I say over and over in the book is when we look at all the drivers in our declining fertility rate, many of them are very good developments. Uh, you know, the decline in infant mortality is a very good development. Uh, I would argue that the, uh, the introduction of women and into workforces across all the sectors of the economy has been on net a very good development for us. But some of the drivers are not very good developments, like, for instance, the rise of divorce, the rise of cohabitation, things which create just objectively worse outcomes for people. Uh, but you have in all of this, you know, these, these changes in how we live, uh, and, and that really gets to, the, as we, what we said just a minute ago, it's about modernity. It's about, you know, how the modern world is changing the human condition and the human experience. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. So modernity comes along, and it offers all kinds of goods, Amongst those goods are vast improvements in human health, uh, radical uh, technological and, uh, and other innovations in terms of, of medicine, uh, not to mention fertility treatments and all the rest. And yet what modernity also brings is all kinds of distractedness uh, from what would have been considered the primary human responsibility of uh, attention to human reproduction. 
Yes. And so, so the demographers have, have these, these theories about what's been going on. And for a long time, there was a theory of what was called the demographic transition. That was the transition, you know, that was created in part by industrialization, in part by improvements in medicine and sanitation, and the decline in the infant birth rate. And what people believed was fertility rates would decline from, you know, being in the six or seven range, which is what they had been in the 1800s, and that they would then settle in at the replacement rate, because they thought that what people naturally would want, you know, when they were taken care of, when medicine was was effective and universally available and people were no longer hungry, that what everybody would naturally want was two children, and we would settle into a replacement rate society. Well, the problem is, as fertility rates began shrinking, they didn't stop at two. And so anywhere where fertility decline has set in, it never stops at the replacement rate. It always continues diving towards the floor and heading down towards 1.4, 1.5. And that became the question. So why are we stuck in dramatically sub-replacement rate fertility? And the theory which was put forward to explain that was called then the theory of the second demographic transition. And what, that are, what those guys argue, the, the two European demographers, Ron Lasegi and Dirk Bandica, uh, and they argue very persuasively that the reason people didn't stop at two was because once they mastered contraception, once they had conquered infant mortality, once they had access to food and higher standards of living and medicine and could do whatever they want and conceive of themselves however they want, they would change their worldview. They would no longer really see themselves as standing in a long line of people paying sort of fealty to the past and looking forward into the future. They would see themselves and their own self-actualization as the highest form of, of human existence. And this would then cause them to have fewer and fewer and fewer children. Uh, now, the theory of second demographic transition has not been proved. It is unprovable in the way that you know moral theories are. Uh, However, it seems to be very powerful. And the fact that when you look around the world, countries don't stop at two. They always keep diving low. This is what we are experiencing in America. Um, it suggests there is something bigger going on. But there's something bigger going on even than what we're discussing here in the sense that we're speaking upon the premise in this discussion as if we're talking about married couples making the decision of how many children they will have when the uh, total replacement rate, the fertility rate, is based on the entire population. And so we also have the intersection now of so many people who are never getting married or who are getting married at much older ages. Uh, the, the time in their lifespan they might even conceivably devote to, uh, to the raising of children ha- has been cut down significantly. And you also have the lifestyle now of childlessness that is more and more popular, especially uh, amongst the cultural elites and the highly educated and all the rest. So, I mean, we're, we're looking at a situation that isn't as rational as married couples saying how many children we're going to have. It's, uh, it, it's a massive change in the value system of an entire civilization. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, and in many ways, there have been intentional changes. People have, you know, intentionally decided to cohabitate together over the years. Uh, people have intentionally decided to get divorced once divorce laws were were uh, reformed back in the 1970s. But in, in many other ways, uh, they've been unintentional changes. You know, college has been, it turns out, an enormous driver in the decline of fertility rates. And that's for several reasons. But just to tick three of them off very quickly. Uh, one, college debt, uh, people say, in, when they ask them in surveys, their, their college indebtedness causes them to postpone both marriage and childbearing. Uh, two, the prospective expense of college adds about a fifth to the cost of uh, the total cost of, of raising a child. But at the, the most gross uh, level, what college does is it robs you of time. Uh, people who used to get married here in America at 18 or 19 College then pushes back the age where you even really consider getting married to 22 or 23. 
The actual age of first marriage in America has crept all the way up to 27, 28. The average age of first birth to 28, 29. Uh, I mean, the biological window that we have to, to, to have babies exactly. is fairly immutable, unfortunately. It's, it's resistant to social planning, <laughs> like to say. And so, you know, as you cut down that window, people, you know, either intentionally or not, they just find they don't have the time they thought they were going to have. They don't have then the families that they thought they were going to have. But there's also the issue of money. Not only do you have college as a part of that equation, but you have parents who are increasingly, just given the consumer mindset of the society around us, uh, thinking of uh, of children as consumer goods. And then they're factoring in how much they're going to cost. And, and, of course, not only in terms of money, but time and investment and all the rest. But the money is right at the center of the equation. Yeah, and you know, in this way, I don't, I don't blame parents all that much because you have a bunch of things that have that have happened. I mean, first of all, middle class wages in America have really been stagnant since the mid 1970s. Uh, you know, the middle class middle class wealth has not grown from 1975 to today the way it did from 1945 to 1975. Since you've had a stagnant middle class, and at the same time, the costs of raising a child in real dollars have dramatically increased. Uh, you know, I run the numbers in the book. And today, when you counter at college and you counter lost, either some lost spousal wages or daycare, uh, a kid is going to wind up costing just an average middle-class couple uh, about $1.1 million to have a, that first child. There are some economies of scale, <laughs> as you have others. That's an enormous commitment. That's a lot of money to ask parents to be spending. And that's that's not if you're buying the $1,000 strollers and the $50,000 play sets and all the, the really crazy bric-a-brac that's out there. And, and all these things just make it harder and harder on parents. Without doubt, there are economic factors and economic implications of our fertility crisis. But we understand that even as human beings are economic creatures, and you can never get away from the economic realities, human beings are far more than that. There are deeper worldview implications of what is at stake here. It's never simply money. And that's demonstrated by the fact that even when human beings were unspeakably poor, they continued to reproduce. Something very different has happened in our times, and we better come to terms with exactly what that is. In the beginning of your book, you actually have a very telling vignette. Uh, When you talk about a shopping area in a very upscale portion there of uh, metropolitan Washington, D.C., and what you observe by uh, not just the stores that are there but the stores that have left and those that come is that evidently we aren't having children but we are having dogs. Yeah, so I this is the little shopping center behind my house. I my wife and I before we had kids, we lived in Old Town Alexandria, a very very tony, very hip and frankly, quite expensive suburb of Washington, D.C., right along the Potomac River. And behind us was this little shopping center with a very, very trendy gastropub and a great coffee shop and a Russian gourmet food market and a children's clothing store. Uh, The children's clothing store went out of business after about 18 months. They were were the first store to fail in this shopping center, and they were replaced by a doggy spa. Uh, This was a remarkable transformation because it left the little town where we were living in with, uh, I think, only two clothing stores for kids in the town. And I believe it was six or seven doggy fancy type boutique. You know, there was a doggy bakery, a doggy spa, a doggy haircut place. Uh, They were everywhere. And when you then go and look at not just the numbers, but also the changes in American life, uh, we've become an amazingly sort of pet fancy country. I mean, if you take somebody who's a dog lover from 1965 and drop them into today's modern world where dogs, we've changed estate planning law so that dogs are allowed to inherit trust funds. 
Uh, we now have car insurance for dogs. We have medical insurance for dogs. Dog psychiatrists. Dog psychiatrists. Uh, we have in Old Town the, the little boarding kennel place for, for dogs. Each dog got their own little miniature house with their own air conditioner, their own television set, and a bed. Not a dog bed, but a people bed in their little house for them to sleep on. And then we pick your doggy up after being there. You have doggy report cards telling you how your doggy did every day, giving you little grades for how he played with others and socialized, etc. I mean, I, I think if you brought a pet lover from 1965 and showed him the world we live in today, they would say, this is insane. I think you can uh, just bring a sane person into the world that we <laughs> inhabit today. You're going to see that. I, I saw one of these advertisements, by the way. They said that they have a, a you know a streaming video of your pet at all times. So in 24 hours a day, if you get lonely, <laughs> where, wherever you are in the world, you can pull up your pet on a streaming video. Uh, this is a weird world, and we're going to talk about some of those worldview implications. But I want to ask about the politics of it for just a moment, Jonathan, because th- this is perplexing to me. As an observer and participant in this process for for decades now, I don't understand why people across the ideological spectrum do not sound the alarm on this. And and I'll tell you why. You look at at, at labor unions and and you look at how their numbers have been falling off precipitously. Uh, You look at – and I'm talking here about those primarily on the political left. Uh, You you look at uh, those who are so concerned about the manufacturing sector. You, You look at those who are concerned with the public schools. And, uh, and, and who think of the public schools as these great social engines that also represent incredible employment opportunities for, uh, for people. What are they going to do without kids? I mean, th- that's the left. I, I know the, the conservatives have their own concerns. Why aren't, why, why aren't the liberals saying we can't possibly carry out a liberal project without children? It's really a mystery. And, and, and the irony in all this is that the guy who brought me to demographics uh, is named Philip Longman, a liberal democratic demographer and writer uh, who, whose book that I read about all this stuff seven or eight years ago uh, was what induced in me my obsession with this. Uh, Phil has been, I would say, on this particular subject, uh, st- studiously ignored by most of the left. They just don't want to engage him on this. And what I have seen, and for all Everything you just said is exactly right. And you could even just think about the, the prospect of government. I mean, if, if at its heart the liberal impulse is to perfect man's experience on Earth through government, which I think is not an unfair way of characterizing it, uh, well, you can't do that, and there's no point in doing that without more kids, right? You can't have the tax base to fund the government programs that you want to perfect man's experience on Earth. Uh, and besides which, there won't be man left anymore. But the, the reaction to Phil and the reaction I've seen to other people who've written about demographics, the reaction, frankly, to my book from the left has really has really just befuddled me because their instinctual reaction seems to be to rally against the idea that A, people are important, uh, or B, that there, anybody should ever suggest that it would be helpful to have babies. Uh, and I don't quite know what's driving that. I don't know if this is all wrapped up in still... You know, the sexual revolution where, you know, maybe people on the left think that to the extent that we say that any sort of lifestyle is suboptimal, it is tantamount to condemning sexual liberation and then uh, is the first step on passing moral judgments on other parts of sexual liberation. Maybe that's a driving. But I don't know. Uh, You know, frankly, the thing which has surprised me is that I, I think, actually, there is a real like Marxist feminist critique of capitalism and all this, which suggests that the free market culture we live in and the capital system we exist in vastly underestimates the value of children, it vastly underestimates the value of parents, and it prohibits women from achieving their fertility ideals, which, by the way, is what has happened in America over the last 40 years. What you have is you have women who aren't, simply aren't having the number of children they say in surveys they wish they could have. Yeah, so, so I would I buy that argument. That feminist reaction... Yeah. Uh, 
and it just hasn't happened. Yeah, and, and John, <laughs> no I, I, I would be tempted to buy that argument, but for those resolute and resilient things called facts, uh, such as the facts that if you take the two largest populations that have attempted to reverse the logic of capitalism, let, let's just say the former Soviet Union and and China, uh, you're looking at nations that, especially in the case of Russia. Uh, actually, it is it is in a far worse demographic decline than is the United States, and and that long predates in terms of uh, of this pattern the breakup of the Soviet Union. Absolutely, the fa- and the fact here's but here's the, the tension between the facts and the, the ideology. The facts are exactly as you say they are, and that's absolutely true. But if you go back to the mid 1970s when the West was having its population bomb freak out. Uh, I think it was Khrushchev who gave a big speech over in Russia mocking Paul Ehrlich and the Western obsession with the population. He said, you know, if we had 100 million new Russians tomorrow, even that would not be too many for us because the glorious people's revolution welcomes more people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so, yes, they, the, the communist system, in fact, did not help fertility. In fact, it depressed fertility in, in many ways in, in almost all cases. Uh, but they were not... Ideologically opposed to more babies, the way sort of modern liberalism yeah. here in the West really seems to be just ideologically opposed to babies in a way which I find puzzling. A couple of thoughts I want to throw at you here. One of them has to do, uh, again, with the politics of all this. And uh, you mentioned earlier the fact that there has been a fall in middle class wages, uh, certainly in terms of any growth in those wages. And there has been, I, I think, a, a measurable decline in the social status of middle-class Americans and social and economic opportunity over the last uh, two to three decades. But is no one doing the math on this and recognizing that you can't have anything like the vast economic expansion that America had in the post-war, that is World War II years, without what also happened at the same time, which uh, was not accidentally called the baby boom? <laughs> it's an amazing coincidence, right? Just like the coincidence of you know the, the fertility bust happening just as the sexual revolution was getting underway. And nobody notices these things. <laughs> Uh, no, and the answer to your question is that uh, no, nobody does notice them. Uh, you know, professional demographers, people write academic papers about these things. They notice them. If you go over to Asia, you go over to Europe, where where people are twenty and thirty years ahead of us on this curve line, on this trend line, uh, there is broad agreement among both the left and the right, that their fertility rates are a source of enormous concern and enormous trouble. They are doing everything they can to try to come up with policy solutions to raise fertility. Uh, and again, this is both the left and the right uh, trying to sort of outbid one another in yeah. terms of their, their natalist policies. And over here in America, we, we are sort of blithely ignorant of all this. Uh, you know, my, but one of the hopes I have for the book was that it can you know, be just a, a little boiling stone here in the pot to help us spur some discussion on our end. Well, it certainly has here, and I want to throw a couple other things out uh, in in that light. Uh, When you start looking at, uh, for instance, uh, just to take North America or or just the United States for a moment, the the total uh, fertility rate has been falling across the board, but it hasn't been falling evenly. And uh, so you have someone like Joel Kotkin who comes along and says, yeah, you know, if you look, if you're going to divide the states between blue states and red states – uh, there are blue states in the United States right now that are far below the total replacement rate. And, oh, yeah. and virtually all, and, and I emphasize this again, all of the growth is in red states. So, you know, it kind of gets to, uh, you know, the, the, the principle that James Taranto of the Wall Street Journal, you know, pointed out years ago. Uh, one of the problems with the pro-choice argument or the, or the abortion rights argument is they tend not to have babies who grow up to agree with them. Yeah, this is exactly true. You know, it, it's, 
so funny. This is the third time I've mentioned Phil, but Phil Longman, my liberal demographer friend, one of the ways he tried to get the left to care about this stuff was to write a piece in foreign policy magazine called Return of the Patriarchy. And what he argued was, uh, hey, look, all the nice liberal people who listen to NPR and live in blue states and read the New York Times, we aren't having enough babies. And if we don't step it up, then America is going to be run by, you know, the type of NASCAR guys who, you know, read the Wall Street Journal and drag their knuckles on the ground. I mean, Phil, Phil doesn't really believe that stuff, but he was just sort of, you know, making a point. Yeah, I remember the uh, article and, well. Yeah. And the, the left, again, they just they didn't care about it. Uh, but this is true. You know, there's, there's a, a guy up at Harvard, Eric Kaufman, who has written a book about religion and fertility. And what he suggests is that when you run the numbers and you look at three sort of three differential rates, uh, they are the differentials between the uh, secular fertility rate and the religious practitioner fertility rate, then the differential between uh, the uh, the attrition rate among religious believers, you know, how often they fall away, and then the pass-on rate of religion from religious practitioners to their children. Uh, when you take all of those things into account, it is entirely possible that America is going to actually, we, that we are sitting at the high watermark of secularism right now in America, and that over the next 20 to 40 years, we're going to see the proportion of the country that are seculars uh, first leveling off, then beginning a gradual decrease, and the proportion of the population which are orthodox practitioners and some of some faith uh, increasing. Yeah, two data points to add to that. For instance, I'm sure you've seen the data out of Manhattan and the Jewish community that uh, the vast growth there is among not just the orthodox but the ultra-orthodox, uh, such that uh, the ultra-orthodox who were a, a, a demographic margin in American Judaism at the uh, the midpoint of the 20th century in New York City are going to predominate very quickly. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I mean, the, all of this is why, I mean, in the very long run, everything works out. Because fertility rates are not constant across populations, and there will always be groups that have more children. And so in the very long run, uh, those groups will inherit the earth, and that'll be fine. The reason I wrote the book and the reason I'm concerned is because the medium-run and short-run problems that we could encounter on our way to that equilibrium point out in the future could be such that it sort of wrecks the entire Western project, and what are we leaving the people who inherit the earth? You know, we're leaving them, we're leaving quite a mess, and uh, the, the goal is to try to avoid, you know, to avoid calamity if possible before we get to the long run where everything works out. Well, the long run you're talking about, I think we need to make very clear, is a very long run. Right, right. Now, I mean, I mean, like you know, eight or ten generations out. Yes, <laughs> I mean, in the very, very long run. And and, and by the way, I think uh, I would agree that you can look at something like uh, the plague, uh, the series of plagues experienced uh, by uh, Europeans uh, in the the seven centuries of of the plague years, and you can see that on the other side of that, uh, there was a new equilibrium that developed. But in the midst of that, were horrors that uh, that, that modern people can't even imagine. Yeah, I mean, people on the left, they always, they always say to me, yeah, but after the Black Plague and all the population decline in Europe, then we had the Renaissance. And I say, sure, we had the Renaissance. It was 150 years later, you know, and with the lifespan back then, that's almost five full generations. Like, that's that's five generations of unimaginable human misery. And but then that's you get the also, Renaissance. That's, that's great. Just, if that's okay with you, that's fine. I myself would like to avoid that. Well, that is also so anecdotal because that's just one cycle of plague. There were many. Right. And, and, and one argument about uh, the, the, the entire medieval period, so often called the Dark Ages, uh, thanks to Petrarch, uh, you, you can look at this and, and, and recognize that a lot of this had to do with the fact that most human beings could do nothing other than tend to the horrifyingly urgent business of being able to eat and feed their children and survive to be able to breed a new generation. That used up virtually all the capital, all the energy, all the money, all the attention of the society. I don't think we want to return to that. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. 
Well, when you look at, at, at your book, by the way, I think of such things as the fact that in, in San Francisco right now, in an American city, uh, there uh, recently was the report that uh, San Franciscans have more dogs than children. So it's, it's not just uh, Alexandria. You know, it's, it's a large metropolitan area such as San Francisco. The worldview implications of this, you, you mentioned Hoffman's work, but let me come back to it for a moment. Just in terms of the research you've done, to what extent does a worldview, uh, explicitly a, a, a Christian, you mentioned religious practitioners, let me just say, the, those who are committed to a Christian worldview, does that show up as a different demographic uh, uh, sector here? No. What shows up as a different demographic sector is church attendance. That's one of the things that's so fascinating about this. If you go back to the data from the turn of the century, from the, you know, the early 20th century, you see big fertility stratifications based on religious sect. And so Mormons at the highest fertility levels, Catholics just below them, uh, mainline Protestants below them, Jews below them. There weren't very many non-believers back then. Uh, beginning in the 1950s and 1960s, those sectarian differences began contracting and collapsing. And what emerged in their place was differences in religiosity. So that today, what you see is a very distinct fertility rate for people who never attend church services, another very distinct fertility rate for people who go twice a year, another fertility rate, right around replacement, by the way, for people who go once a month, and then a very healthy fertility rate, right around 2.35, for people who go to services once a week. And it doesn't matter if those are Catholic services, evangelical services, Jewish services, Mormon services, it doesn't matter what. All that matters is that you show up uh, and I find that to be a fantastically evocative piece of data, uh, because I think what it's saying is it's it's saying a lot about what it takes to get people over the hump and committing to having having families. Uh, and, and what it's saying is something I think bigger than any single religion, single than any religious tenet. Uh, you know, I mean, every religion has its own sort of be version of be fruitful and multiply. I don't think that's what's driving people to have kids. I think it is is something more basic about the the very deistic view of the world, which is these are people who view the present differently than everybody else. The people who don't go to church, that for them the present is is all it is all inclusive. It is everything. The present is is the entirety of their worldview. For the people who go to church once a week, what I would argue is that is that. The present actually has a much diminished place in their worldview. The present is important. The present is consequential, but is only viewed in light of obligations to the past and hopes yeah. for the future. I think that's very insightful. I want to push just a little bit, though, because as I look at the data, uh, they do tend to indicate that, uh, again, to take the Jewish example just given, uh, even beyond mere participation by uh, by attendance, at least in terms of groups, the groups that are most likely to have the highest birth rates are those that within their own uh, their own religious worldview tradition are, are the most traditional and conservative and orthodox. orthodox. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that, that, that doesn't surprise me uh, because, again, these, these are people who really believe. Uh, I mean, this is – you know, I sort of close the book by saying this. You know, I sort of hate to spoil it for people who <laughs> might be wanting to go read it. But at the end of the day, I mean, having kids is the most serious thing that you can do. And the reason you do it is because you believe in something very, very seriously, uh, you know. And whether that thing is whether that thing is God, whether it is secular humanism as a concept, whether it is America or the Western Project, if you believe in anything seriously enough, then children must follow eventually. And I think that's exactly what this is about Orthodox believers, people who are, who are more intensely Orthodox or are more serious in their belief, and that's why children follow. Your book is is filled with uh, what in one chapter you call very bad things, uh, which is a very, very honest assessment of uh, of where uh, the the data would take us. 
But uh, when you begin the book, you say you're not selling doom. In, in other words, oh, oh, by the way, you say if selling doom will sell more books, then we're doomed. But uh, I, I understood that. <laughs> but uh, you're not selling doom. In other words, there are very many bad things, bad trends, uh, very, very many dangerous and ominous things out there facing us. And, and some of them all the more depressing in one sense because th- there appears to be no way to reverse the trends or to fix them. But you still have a rather uh, hopeful uh, disposition, and and I guess I got to the end of the book and I thought, okay, Jonathan, why? In other words, if I take the very bad things you look at at in this book and I just take them on their face value, I come up with a very bad analysis of where these very bad things are going to take us. Yeah, you know, and the reason I say that we're not doomed, I say it to to begin the book and then end the book, uh, is because one of one of the things that drives me nuts is guys who write about this stuff with, like, the voice of total authority, as if they had just gotten out of a time machine from the future and were reporting what it's going to look like. I just feel like the limits of social science are so, are so, so near. They are even nearer than we might think, even people who are skeptical of social science, uh, that we really need to be modest about our projections from the future, because none of us have a crystal ball. All we can really do is try diligently to understand how we got to here right now, you know, try to understand all the trends, all the history, all the data that got us to where we are right now, to try to understand very honestly where right now really is, you know, if you sort of take all the Heisenberg variation principle stuff into account. Uh, try to understand where right now is, and then look at what the possibilities for the future are. And, you know, you can say one possibility is more likely than another, but always understand that trends reverse themselves. Things happen. Trends don't always go to the moon. If you looked at the decline of the American fertility rate from 1800 to 1930, no one in 1935 would have believed that 10 years later the American fertility rate was going to double when the baby boom began. Uh, there was there was no reason for us to believe that that would have happened. Uh, and so we we should always remember, this is why we should never get too pessimistic, no matter how dark things look and how, how very bad the very bad things are that you know one could see on the horizon. We should always understand the future is malleable. Demography is not destiny. Uh, you know, it determines the realm of the possible, but isn't destiny. Uh, and, and that's why I hope that the book is, is at least slightly yeah. hopeful. That's true. But, uh, you know, once again, I want to go back to Philip Longman, who points out that the one thing we do know, however, is that non-existent people will not breed. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so just looking at that, at what the, uh, the, the already existing trends uh, indicate, uh, it would take an incredible resurgence of reproductive activity amongst those now living and in generations to come uh, to make uh, much of an impact here. But we can live in hope. Yeah, we can live in hope. And I, you know, I, I go to the ideal fertility rate, which is both a source of, of blind terror and a source of great hope. Uh, demographers measure what's called ideal fertility. That is the number of children people say they, they would like to have in a perfect world. And the source of hope is that in America, our fertility rate, for all that we've heard about social changes over the last 40 years and about how the bourgeois family model is no longer attractive to people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, here in America, our ideal fertility rate is very high, is 2.5. That's, that's more than half a child higher than actual fertility. Uh, but more importantly, it has been 2.5 for two generations now. It's been rock solid. So here in America, the problem isn't that people don't want families. And while many people don't want families, and I say in the book, I'm not here to argue that you should have kids. I say, God bless you. I celebrate your choice. But your, your life is not the median experience in America, and most people still want kids the same way they did 40 years ago. So what our problem here in America is bridging that divide. Our problem is finding ways to help people achieve their fertility ideals. And I think that, that is, while there is not a lot of research suggesting that that is a doable thing, or, or certainly nobody has really succeeded in doing that yet, I think that's a more, 
a more doable and a more sellable proposition than trying to convince people who don't want kids into having them. Jonathan V. Lass, most recent book, What to Expect When No One's Expecting, has been out for just a few weeks itself. But, Jonathan, I want to turn to you and say, I, I know at this point you're already interested in another project and probably already writing it. What would that be? Oh, gosh. You know, so I've, I've been circling other things and trying to figure out what, what a next book would be like. Uh, but I haven't been able to settle on something because the truth is, I mean, I, I've lived with this subject for about seven years. It took me three years to write this book. When I started this book, I had a two-week-old child. When the book came out, my third kid had been was four weeks old. So, like, my life changed completely, I would say, during the course of preparing this. And I can't really imagine uh, right now, with a, a two-month-old kid at home uh, and a four-year-old and a two-year-old, I can't really imagine living with another subject right now. So, uh, so I'm going to put that on the back burner at least for a few more months. That sounds like a very wise decision. And uh, I appreciate so much the time that you have spent with us today. And I pray God's blessings upon you, your family, and uh, your children. And as the back cover of your book says, uh, uh, all of you together in your minivan. There's the picture. (laughs) Thank you so much. Well, what should we expect when no one's expecting? What a great book title. It points to this demographic reality that itself points to something far more basic, and that is a worldview reality. If you were listening closely, you heard Jonathan last say that the most sophisticated understanding of the differences that worldview would play in this had to do with church attendance, what he called religious practice. And he pointed to the fact that research demonstrates very clearly that the increased attendance at church services or religious services translates into a far higher fertility rate. And of course, As other data indicate, what we're looking at is the fact that people who have a worldview that is more orthodox, according to their own religious tradition, are far more likely to have a higher number of babies. This is true in the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. It's true in the more traditionalist Roman Catholic community. It's true amongst the more conservative evangelicals in America. It's true among Mormons and others. I think more is going on here than church attendance, although I don't want to underplay the kind of peer context and community that you find in churches and synagogues and religious groups that say having babies is important, and those who are having babies are to be honored, and those who sacrifice to be parents are to be respected. I think it's far more than that. I think there is a very clear worldview indicator that is going on here. Those who believe that God's glory is found in marriage, and in marriage in all the goods that come with marriage, including the gift of children— Those who believe in the future as grounded not in demographic projections but in the very rule and reign of God are far more likely to have the confidence to have children, to have the commitment to have children, perhaps even the desire to have children, and then the willingness to make the necessary sacrifices to have and to raise children. When we look at the demographic realities, these do point to the very bad things that Jonathan Last so clearly documents in this book. Very bad things, such as the fact that you have not only a birth dearth, as many have called it, but you also have a vast increase in the number of those living who are at advanced stages of life, indeed the elderly. And the biggest phenomenon coming to us there is going to be the rise, the rapid rise in the very aged. And then you look at the amount of cultural and social, economic and political attention that will be devoted to that sector, and you realize without an increasing number of young people coming behind, we're really going to be in trouble. Looking at Japan is just one snapshot of the reality. 
where there are not going to be enough people working to take care of the people who are not. And those who are working are those who are the young and those who are entering the workforce and those who can continue in it. What we're looking at here is a catalog of very bad things. But human beings have seen these very bad things before. The amazing thing about our current situation is the refusal to see them and to acknowledge these things and then to come to terms with them. As I pointed out in the conversation with Jonathan last, I'm completely perplexed why those on the left as well as those on the right do not see the problem in terms of America's ideological divide. Because what is common to both is the absolute necessity of a future if there is to be a continuation of the project to which each is committed. There seems to be, however, amongst both the left and many on the right, not just a failure but a refusal to see these realities. And going beyond where Jonathan Last would take us in his book, I have to say as a Christian theologian, I think the reason for that is a willful blindness and a rebellion against a God-given order that goes far deeper to the human heart than demography can ever itself point. It was a good conversation with Jonathan Last. I appreciate so much his book, and you will too. Again, the title of the book is What to Expect When No One's Expecting, America's Coming Demographic Disaster. Thanks again to my guest, Jonathan Last, for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to direct your attention to my new book, The Conviction to Lead, 25 Principles for Leadership That Matters. My concern is to develop effective leaders who have more than administrative skill, who develop more than mere vision. Leaders need to be able to change the hearts and minds of those they lead. In other words, they need to develop the conviction to lead. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.